we began last week with the big assignment. That's what we're calling the series. And the reason why we're doing this is because we're, as we're coming up on celebrating five years as a church, we launched New Life with a core identity as a church, as a, as a church, as a community of being a movement, that we don't just exist for ourselves, that we exist for others. We exist for others outside the walls of this building. And last week we said that when Jesus first started his ministry, he called the first four guys to follow him in one day, two sets of brothers, Andrew and Peter and James and John, and they were professional fishermen. And he said to these guys, follow me, and I'm going to turn you into something that you're not, because I've got something big for you if you're willing. And if we didn't already know the story, and if Jesus were to say to you or to say to me, I want you to follow me, I'm going to turn you into something, what would you expect Jesus to want to turn you into? Most people, I suspect, would say, well, I would expect that Jesus would want to make me more holy because I'm far from it, or make me more religious, or make me more disciplined, or make me more morally pure. But Jesus, what he says, he says, it's none of those things. We said last week that Jesus looked at them and said, if you follow me, I want to make you something that you're not. I want to make you fishers of men. And they had no idea what they meant, that meant. And they weren't even interested in that. And honestly, neither was I. I became a Christian so that when I die, I can go to heaven and not hell. It was pretty simple. You know, because I thought that God might be able to fix my broken life and help me stop waking up in each morning having more self-loathing than the day before, especially after a Friday or a Saturday night. It was for totally self-serving reasons, not because I was worried about anyone else or any of you, okay? Because it was all about me. And if you're a Christian, chances are when you became one, it was all about you because you, uh, you had issues or you had desires or you had a crisis or you had a need or maybe you had a, an emptiness. You faced a, a, a crossroads and you knew I need something more. And you said, okay, God, if you're giving out free passes, I need one. I'll take one of those. And while we're at it, since you're about giving good things, you know, help me with this and help me with that. And if you could give me this, give me that. I want to be happy. I want to be happy. And supposedly giving my life to you will make me happy. And we all come to Christ, we all come to Jesus basically because of what's in it for us. And he tells us what he tells those first four guys that, listen, I, I'm going to help you with all of that. I want to help you with all of that, but I'm not inviting you into my family just to make you better. I'm not inviting you into my family just to make you pure and a better husband or a better wife or make you a husband or wife or make you a better dad or more financially secure and all of those wonderful things that if you follow me likely will happen, but I've got something bigger for you that isn't about you. And he uses this term, I'm going to make you fishers of men, which meant simply this, that I'm going to, I'm going to help you become a person that brings other people to me. I'm going to help you become a person that brings other people to me. And Jesus says, I'm going to use you, and I'm going to want you to open your mouth, and I'm going to want you to talk about me out loud, even though it may not be politically correct, even though it may not be comfortable. I'm going to lead you to the place where you bring others to me. And if we're honest, it's at that point we just put on the brakes and go, okay, that is not what I'm signing up for. That is not what I want to be a part of. It's just I don't want to be fishers of men. I just want to be a better person. I just want to go to heaven when I die. I just want a marriage. I want a good marriage. I want to be a good parent or a good grandparent. I just want to have balance in my finances and all those kinds of things. So that's just all I want. Why? Why do I have to fish 
And why can't we just let everyone believe in what they want to believe in? I mean, most other religions do not send people out to try and convert people from other religions to their religion. And the truth is, at this point in history, most Christians don't go around trying to get other people to get them to believe what they believe. So why not just leave well enough alone and not feel the pressure to convince others about what I believe? Why fish? And the answer to why is so important because, like I said last week, if we miss or ignore this part of the calling of Jesus on our life, we miss a huge part of what it means to be his follower. So today we're going to address the huge why, and it has something to do with the uniqueness of the message. See, the reality is that most people in our culture think and believe all roads and religions lead to God. All roads and religions lead to God. It's just, it's just different names with different times and different nationalities and different nations. But basically, it all leads to God. We just all need to get the bumper sticker and coexist because in the end, the destination and the end result is just the same for every religion. But as we're going to discover today, that's not the case. If you actually read the New Testament, if you actually read what Jesus taught and what he said about himself and read what the writers tell us, you quickly discover Jesus said way too much about himself. He claimed too much about himself. There's too much specific and narrow clarity as to how one makes peace with God and how one is accepted on the day that we eventually all stand before God. And it's so important that we be clear on this because of what's at stake. The idea of all roads lead to God and all roads lead to heaven is clearly shown to not be the case in many places in the New Testament today, but today we're just going to look at one, one incident that happened with Peter and John. Peter and John were, were two of the first four guys that Jesus called from their nets and boats. This is something that happened to them after Jesus died, rose from the dead, ascended to be with the Father, and this story is found in the book of Acts, A-C-T-S not A-X-E, okay? Now, some of you are newer to the Bible or newer to Bible study, and the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, is basically about what the guys who followed Jesus did after Jesus left and how the church got started. And there's this story about Peter and John. And here's how the story starts. One day, Peter and John, they're going to the temple to pray in Jerusalem. It's three in the afternoon. They're, they're, they're Jewish men, but they're followers of Jesus. So they go to the temple to pray, uh, and Jesus is gone, so they go to the temple to pray, and there's this guy laying there by the wall, and he's a beggar. Now Luke, who was a physician who wrote the book of Acts, who carefully investigated everything, he tells us that the man has never walked, that he's been lame from birth, and he's sitting there with a bowl or a cup or something, and he's begging for money because he can't work, and he sees Peter and John walking by, so he kind of shouts over to Peter and John, hey, you know, uh, and he kind of rattles his bowl or cup. How about a donation for the crippled guy? And Peter stops, and Luke tells us that they stop and they gaze at him for a second. And then he thinks these guys are going to give him some money. Then Peter walks over, and he says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. At what, this point, we don't know. The guy probably thought, oh, great, more advice. Uh, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And suddenly, he finds strength in his legs. And slowly, slowly, I mean, just imagine the drama of this moment. This man stands up for the very first time in his life. 
And he begins to walk. And then he begins to run. And Peter and John just disappear into the temple. It's like just, just a normal day's work for them. And this man walks, and then he runs, and then he leaps, and then he shouts, and then he rushes into the temple, and everyone sees this guy. And here's this guy we've seen for years sitting by the gate, and they begin to ask amongst themselves, how, how has this happened? This is the same guy that we've seen sitting here for years begging, and now he's running around, and he runs to Peter, and he grabs him, and he points and says, this is how. This is how this happened. So now there's all this commotion, and a big crowd is beginning to form. And Peter, the fisher of men, thinks, hey, I got a crowd. I got a bunch of fish. And Peter steps up on the steps, and he starts to preach because he's got a big assignment. And Jesus, uh, the big assignment of Jesus, and the opportunity presents itself. And he's got all these people's undivided attention. Now there's all this commotion, and the big crowd gathers. And Peter, the fisher of men, thinks, great, great crowd. He starts to preach. Well, the leaders of the temple, they hear all this commotion, they come down, and sure enough, here are these two troublemakers, followers of the carpenter who we had killed, and he's been gone for days now, what's this about? And they hear Peter and John talking about Jesus right there in the temple. Now, it's bad enough you believe in him, it's worse that you talk about him, but now you're talking about him right here in the temple, so they arrest them. It's three in the afternoon, so they throw them in jail, say, we'll deal with you tomorrow. So this is their reward for healing a crippled guy. The next day comes that they gather all these religious big dogs together. Then they call in Peter and John and say, what's this all about? And then Peter preaches another little mini sermon that we're going to look at in a minute. But these guys, they're just baffled. They, they don't know what to do. So they send Peter and John out. They have this little meeting and ask, like, what are we going to do with these guys? They continue to talk about this dead Nazarene, and they decide, okay, well, let's get him back in. And they go, look, this is just a warning. If you don't want to spend more nights in jail, and we cannot think 21st century jail. This is first century jail. This was a place of torture and death. It, was, it stunk. It was hot. It's like, surely this will shut them up. So they call Peter and John back in, and they try and intimidate them into, into being quiet and to quit talking about Jesus. And that's where we're going to pick up the story right at the very end. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And if you think about it, this is basically the message of our culture. Like, like you can believe it. You can raise your kids to believe it. Keep it to yourself. Keep it at home. Keep it private. Quit talking about the name of Jesus. You're causing a disturbance. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. In other words, we've got to do what God wants us to do, and we are not going to shut up. Now, the interesting thing about this little interchange is that the men that Peter and John were talking to were religious men. In fact, they believed in the same God that Peter and John believed in. They were all Jewish men. They all had respect for the temple. They all believed that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, they were sent by God. And they're almost all completely on the same page except for this one little irritating detail. Jesus. Peter and John wanted to add Jesus in the equation. But other than that, they're identical in their belief system. So the Pharisees and the leaders like the culture of our day, or say, look, it's just the Jesus part that's giving us trouble. So quit talking about Jesus. And what 
Peter and John say next is so huge for you and for me. Peter and John replied, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we believe. That's not what it says. This is very important. See, for Peter and John, this, was, this wasn't about them having a different belief system. This wasn't a debate about opinion or morality or philosophy or theology or doctrine. Peter and John are saying, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We have seen and heard something. We have witnessed something. We didn't go off in the corner and conclude, hey, let's make something up, you know, to add to Judaism. Let's, let's come up with a new character because it's just, you know, we're kind of tired of the Old Testament because it's old, okay? We need something new. So we need some new stories to add to the old. They're like, look, we didn't make this up. We can't shut up because we have seen something. We have heard something. We have witnessed something that has happened in history, something that has happened in this very city. So how can you tell us not to talk about what we have seen and heard? Now, here's why this is so important. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're kind of hesitant, because honestly, we all have the same issues. It's like, I can't tell people about Jesus. I mean, what if they ask a question that I can't answer? What if they say something I can't refute? What if they, what if they have some argument that I've never heard? And I'm not going to know how to respond because here's what we think. We think talking about Jesus is about doing a class on comparative religion. Well, I believe this. Well, yeah, well, I believe this. Well, what about this? And, you know, how do you answer? And suddenly we think that talking about Jesus gets us into a debate about a belief system. This is not the case. Listen, sharing about Christ and being a fisher of men and women isn't about having so much knowledge that you can refute all the skeptics. That's not it at all. That wasn't their point. So please hear me, because this may totally change your paradigm of how you have always thought about sharing your faith. Our point and their point are the same. Christians believe something happened. Christians believe something happened in history. That there was an event that was so huge that you should not and cannot ignore it because it has become the centerpiece to all of human history. We can't explain everything about it. We can't refute skeptics. There are lots of questions that I don't have answers for. But the issue, the issue isn't my belief system versus yours. The issue is, did something happen? And Peter and John are saying, look, we're telling you, Threaten us all you want, but we saw it with our own eyes. We heard it with our own ears. We have to talk about it. And you have to remember the context. These guys, Peter and John, these were the cowards that ran away. This is Peter, the one who was intimidated and scared by a middle school aged girl into denying he even knew Jesus. After Jesus died, they went into hiding. They went back to their old lives. To them, it was over. So, it begs the question, what did they see and hear that was so huge that it would cause them to go from being cowards to ready to die, ready to risk their lives for what they saw and heard? What did they see and hear that was so huge that it would make them say to the very same people who had Jesus executed, which means they're the very same people that could have them executed, to say to them, listen, we can't shut up. We won't shut up. 
even if you put me in prison, and later on, even if you put me to death. Now, let me rewind the tape just a little bit. So they were arrested. They spent the night in jail. Before they bring in Peter and John, Luke tells us, the next day the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. Now, I cannot overemphasize how important this is. Annas was the guy. But this guy was the pinnacle of the religious hierarchy. Annas was the only person in the nation of Israel who was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. Some of you, uh, I saw it when it was first out in theaters. A lot of you aren't that age. But some of you remember Raiders of the Lost Ark, okay? Ark of the Covenant. I mean, you touch it, your face melts off, all that. Okay, the Ark of the Covenant was a real thing. And if you touched it, you died. And when they built the temple, they put the Ark of the Covenant right in the middle of what they called the Holy of Holies. And only one person was allowed even in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. And that was the high priest. In other words, in their way of thinking, this guy was as close to God as you could possibly get in the physical world. So that's, this guy showed up in the meeting. Not only him, Annas the high priest was there, so was Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest before Annas. He was a famous person in history. He did all this, all kinds of stuff that's written about in secular, uh, by his secular historians. He did all kinds of stuff. And then John Alexander and others from the high priest family, we don't know about these guys, but people that would have read this and heard this would have gone, are you serious? Like all these guys showed up in the same room for this meeting? This was huge. They had Peter and John brought in before them and they began to question them. Because here was their, their problem. There was a guy running around out there, literally, who had never walked before. Later they say, everyone in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. You've, you've got some sort of secret power or magic going on. So here's the question, Peter and John. By what power or what name did you do this? And then Peter. And again, Peter, the coward. Peter, the runaway. Peter, the one who went into hiding filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called into account today for an act of kindness, which was just kind of a jab. It's kind of like, all right, if you've arrested us because we healed a crippled man, this act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and you're now, we're now being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And when he said the name Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, about five of the guys in this meeting just cringed because they had been in the presence of this very man. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And I, I think at this point, I can't substantiate, but I think Peter pointed at his finger. Whom you crucified, you remember. This wasn't years ago. This was just a few weeks ago. You broke your own law. You broke our own law to try him. You broke our own law to convict him. You hired people. You hired people to be witnesses who lied against him. You know very well who Jesus of Nazareth was and what happened. And Peter and John, they're by themselves. They're surrounded by armed guards. They're around all these high-powered people who have the power over life and death. And Peter says, by the way, we did this miracle in the name of Jesus Christ. And then I think he pointed his finger, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead. Do you want to know why we can't be quiet? It is not because of theology or doctrine or because we've come up with some sort of cult or religion to get a following. We can't be quiet because like most of you in this room, 
We saw him crucified and we saw him die. And guess what? God who allowed him to be crucified has raised him from the dead. And me and John over here, we stuck our heads into an empty tomb. And me and John over here, then we saw him. And then after that, we had breakfast with him on the beach. And we chased him everywhere we could find him. And he showed up to us. He appeared to more than 500 people. So how can we be quiet? This is why we cannot be quiet. And this is why we will not be intimidated by you. It is because of what we saw, an event, and say and do what you want. But John and I, we're on assignment, and we are fishers of men because of what we have seen and what we have heard, and we are not going to stop. And then he just slices and dices them again. I can't even explain the hugeness of this slap in the face adequately. He says, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed because he was in the room. And then what Peter says next, I'm going to give you the long version, and then we'll look at the the verses. Essentially, here's what Peter says next. Hey, religious men, leading religious men, Remember that verse you memorized as a child, Psalm 118, verse 22. It was this messianic prophecy that King David wrote hundreds of years before. Every Jewish little boy memorized this, and they know it's a a verse about the coming Messiah. You remember this? You remember the one that goes like this? That one day, the Messiah is going to show up, and there are going to be people, and there are going to be leaders who don't recognize him. And the writer of the Psalms compares them to a builder who's looking for stones to build his house, and he picks up a stone, and he looks at it, and he goes, nah, this is no good for my house, and he throws it in the rubbish heap. And in the psalm, God says uh, that he's going to take that very stone and he's going to take the stone that the builders rejected and God's going to use it to be the cornerstone that determines the construction of the entire building. And remember as a child how you would read that and go, who would be so blind as to be in the presence of the Messiah and not recognize him for who he was? Who in the world would reject the one that God has so obviously chosen to be the cornerstone? And Peter says, hey guys, I've got some good news for you. You are famous. Like, you guys are the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. I mean, there have been lots of high priests and no one's ever going to remember their names, but Caiaphas, forever and ever, people are going to remember your name. That's the good news. The bad news is they're going to know you're the ones. You're the ones who handled and listened to and and stood in the presence of the Messiah and discarded the very one that God has raised from the dead and established as a cornerstone for everything he's going to do from this point forward. And all your life, you wondered who could be so blind, so arrogant, so stupid as to miss the Messiah. Congratulations, guys. You're the ones. You did it. You crucified him, but God raised him. Here's the verse, and you're going to wonder where I got all that. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected which has become the cornerstone. And then Peter goes right to the heart of the matter. Salvation is present tense, now. Not one day, someday. Salvation is today, now, forever, found in no one else. And see, to them, and every other religion would respond, what do you mean no one else? Salvation has never been found in a who. Salvation has always been found in a what. 
Salvation is how well you do, how well you keep the law, how well you please God, how high you jump. Salvation is about sacrifice and killing animals and pleasing God and staying on good si- God's good side. Salvation is about prayer and performance. And Peter's saying everything has changed. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name. Not another list of rules, not another list of commandments, not a performance. There is no other name under heaven given. And in the Greek, it's once for all, not to be repeated, given to men by which we must be, can be saved. In other words, guys, I'm not arguing theology. I'm not even going to tell you this is fair. I'm not saying this isn't narrow. It's very narrow. And there are lots of things that I don't know, like Genesis and dinosaurs and and floods and arcs and bad things happening to good people. Like there's just a lot of things I don't understand. But this I do, that there is no other name that has ever been or will ever be given to men by which we can find forgiveness. And Peter would say, I wouldn't believe it either because like most of you, I saw him die. But then I saw an empty tomb and then I saw him. And then I had breakfast with him. And if a man claims to be the key to God and the way to forgiveness, and he dies and then rises from the dead, I'm with him. This is a brand new thing, and we've got to talk about it. Not simply because of what we believe about him, but what we have seen and heard. And I love the response to Peter by these powerful religious men in verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. I love that because I'm like, they were just like us. They're just ordinary. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Do you know why we have to embrace the big assignment and be fishers of men and women? We have to fish because the message of Jesus is not an intuitive message. We have to fish because the message of salvation is grounded in history, not experience. It is unique. The message of forgiveness is not a message that you can just go sit under a tree and come up with all your own. If you decide you're going to go try and explore the mysteries of God and you go sit under a tree uh, to do so without having heard the story of Jesus... And you're just going to use your intellect to get there. You'll get part of the way there. You'll likely arrive at the conclusion that there's a God. You might even arrive at the conclusion that there's a good God. You might come to the conclusion that there's good and evil in the world. That there might be life after death. That there might be some sort of eternity. Because something in your heart longs for and senses something bigger. It's like, I know it could be. I mean, you might get a third or even half of the way there on your own, but the, the unique message of salvation through Jesus, you will never know or figure out unless what? Someone tells you. This is so important. Because left to your own devices, here's what you'll come up with. You'll arrive at the conclusion that every other religion has arrived at. And the conclusion is this, that there's a God, that somehow he's a good God. He accepts good people. So whatever good looks like, I need to be good. I better be good. So God is basically Santa Claus. All right? And, and you can try to be good according to the Old Testament, if that's your preference. You can try to be good to, according to the Quran, 
if that's your preference, or the Book of Mormon, if that's your preference. I mean, there's dozens of options to, if, once you decide that there's a good God surrounded by good people and you have to be good to be accepted by God. And, and it's true that once you remove Christianity, it's true that all religions seemingly lead to the same place. And left to your own devices, you'll probably come to the same conclusion that every other religious leader has come to. But Peter and Jesus and the New Testament writers would say, listen, listen, you need to know there is no other name given among men by which you must be saved. It's a narrow and a unique claim. And you can't arrive at the conclusion unless someone comes and tells you. And they tell you that 2,000 years ago, God who created us and loved us, loves us, sent His Son into the world. He touched down on the planet Earth. And He was crucified to pay the price for your sins and mine. That He rose from the dead to prove it. And now He sits at the right hand of the Father. And the good news is that good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. And there is no other name by which you receive forgiveness except the name of Jesus Christ, the unique Son of God. And that's not an intuitive message, is it? For, for those of you who would say, I'm a Christian or I'm a Jesus follower, which is most of you, you would never have arrived on that on your own, would you? A few years ago in the Smithsonian, every now and then I read certain magazines that make me sound smart. I was reading this story about the Lykov family who actually who had fled into Siberia in the mid-1930s. And they did this to escape religious persecution at the hands of the communists. Uh, and they spent more than four decades in complete isolation as a family out in the wilderness and just made a life. It's a fascinating story. So when they were finally discovered, and even the story of how they were discovered is fascinating, but they were oblivious. They were oblivious to the fact that there had been a Second World War. They were oblivious to the horrors of Stalinist rule. They were completely unaware of Russian rule in East Berlin and the tension between the U.S. and Russia and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Why? Because all of that is history, and the only way to know that is for someone to tell you. And each of you understands the implications of this truth. The reason we must fish, the reason we must talk about and share our faith in Jesus is because our faith is grounded in history and you don't know history unless someone talks about it and tells you about it. And so we need to share what we know. We have to share what we believe and why. We have to share our faith not because people can't find God, without us, but because they'll never know the message of salvation without us. We don't do it because we have superior morality. That's not it. We don't do it because we have all the answers to all the world's questions. We do it because we believe that 2,000 years ago a man came to this earth sent by God to be the salvation of all men, women, and young people who would receive him as their savior. So over the next few weeks, I just want to help you with this. Because we're going to talk about, I want to help you with the why, the why we don't fish and how we overcome all the whys we don't and to begin to fish. Now, as, as I close, I want to invite the band to come on up. If you're here today and, and you haven't crossed that line of faith yet, and we actually have several people, part of our community, because we say all the time, you can belong before you believe. But if you're someone that you haven't crossed that line yet, or you just realize after hearing me talk, God through others 
they've been fishing for you. <laughs> they may be sitting next to you. They may be with you in your home. And maybe a while, while I was talking, it's just like the blinders came off. It's like, I get it. It's clear. Well, that's just the Holy Spirit at work in your heart, and I can't explain it. I just know that when you mix this message with the human heart and your current life circumstances, things happen. So today, I just want to encourage you to take the opportunity to embrace this truth personally, to allow Jesus to become your personal Savior. For there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, that we, and that we includes me and it includes you. And don't let the big question of, well, what about the people who haven't heard? And it's not their fault that they haven't heard. And what happens to them? And what about this? And what about that? And what about them? And here's what I would always say, what I always say to someone like that. Listen, right now you have information that you need to deal with. Don't be distracted by everyone else because this is just about you and God. And having been given the opportunity for you to make peace with God and be saved. And the way that it happens is really simple. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't. You don't jump high. It's none of that. It's all about faith. Specifically trust, putting the full weight of your life and eternity fully on what Christ has done on your behalf. See, and I've asked this question as I've met people that are new to our community. I've asked this many over coffee or lunch. And in the conversation, I've asked people, like, like do you... when? When it comes to your faith, like when you die, do you believe you'll go to heaven? And then um, all of them have said yes. And then the interesting thing is when I've asked, well, why do you believe that? And the great variety of answers that I get to that question. So I'm going to help you. See, if God were to say to you, why should I give you salvation? Why should I accept you? The correct response is one thing. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with what, with what Jesus Christ has done for me. That's it. I believe that when he died, he died for me, and so I'm receiving the gift of forgiveness. I'm accepting it. I'm voluntarily saying I believe and I receive. And Jesus tells us, and history attests to it, and you're surrounded by people who would say that when an individual opens their heart and receives the gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ, it establishes a new connection between you and your Heavenly Father. And that's just the beginning of a brand new, new quality kind of life. And if you've not taken that step, I just want to encourage you to do that, to share it with the person that you know. Again, they've kind of been fishing for you for a long time. Or share it with me. You can interrupt me even if I'm having a conversation with anybody after service. Interrupt me or message me. I'll make the time to meet with you one-on-one -on -one and have that conversation and help you take that next step to help you do what so many around you have and that is to ultimately stand in God's love.